Welcome to the WCAPS Vibe podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vibe. Vision. Impact. Voice. Thank you, WCAPS community, for joining us in this discussion about male mentorship and mentorship in general. And I would like to first have our guest introduce himself and share a couple of professional and personal interests. Okay, well, before I introduce myself, I'd like to thank you, Gabrielle, and of course, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I, I feel very honored and I'm, I'm trying hard not to show how giddy I am. But, uh, just to let you know, I am currently uh, a maritime security consultant for the, for the cargo and cruise industry, the, the global maritime community. Lately, that extends out to, to the supply chain the land-based supply chain that services and supports various ports and vessels worldwide. I am formally a, uh, an intelligence and security specialist for the U.S. government in both civilian and uh, military positions. did that for a number of years, and then in the early 90s, peace broke out, the wall fell, and the Soviet Union imploded. And uh, they patted us on the head and said, congratulations, we won, see ya. So uh, I took my government-acquired skills to the, um, to the cruise industry. I was uh, invited to join a, another former associate who was asked to set up a global security department for one of our countries, one of the world's larger cruise lines. Can I mention the cruise line? Sure. Princess Cruises. I think that's important because everyone knows the Love Boat. Well, we were the faces behind the Love Boat maintaining security for the passengers and crew worldwide. That was very interesting and exciting. And it's always nice when someone else pays to send you worldwide to travel. Oh, absolutely. Yes. However, as a consequence of the terrorist attack of 9-11, the UN... At the at the uh, request of its its independent maritime arm, the International Maritime Organization promulgated a regulatory instrument that has the force of law globally. And what it did was establish standards and practices for preventive security for the commercial maritime community worldwide. That sounds like a mouthful, but basically, overnight, what it did was create a a new career field where the standards for training and certification are uniform so you can go to school and receive the training and get certified here in the united states or jamaica or nairobi and take that certification and find employment anywhere or where they need a maritime security professional around the world Uh, But wait, there's more. Since uh, global maritime commerce is 
critical. It is a critical source of information for uh, national security interests as well as international insurance interests. That significantly broadens the opportunities for people in this career field. Now, here in the United States, if you tell someone you work in security, they automatically think gates, guards, and guns. But it is so much more than that. And now, with, how can I say this? With the, the significant degree of infrastructure development that's currently going on in, in conjunction with development, infrastructure development in Africa, as well as infrastructure development in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, the Indian continent, and some Pacific areas as a result of the China Belt and Road Initiative, as well as the, the, Pacific, the Pan-Pacific Partnership. So all of those global diplomatic and business activities are calling for and creating opportunities for people in the trade and transportation security discipline. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, you know, perhaps there are a few listeners who are interested in kind of learning about what that is. So very excited to explore that further in our conversation. What about personal interests? Did you have any of those uh, to share? <laughs> I, I do have personal interests. Uh, well, now I have personal interests. My kids, my, my daughters used to complain that, Dad, I, you, you travel all over the world and, and you never seem to take any time off and you take pictures, but they're always of gates and, and locks and people with guns standing on, on guard duty. So I have developed interests in, uh, well, first of all, travel and the arts. I am not artistic at all, but I like supporting the arts. And I have friends who are visual artists and, and musicians and dancers and things like that. So that's what I enjoy. Very cool. I, too, have an affinity for the arts. Um, growing up, I went to a performing arts school, and I was a visual artist. So I, too, oh. I'm not that much of a, an artist these days, but I do definitely support the art. If there I'm ask, which school did you go to? Uh, Cleveland School of the Arts. Ah, okay. Yeah. Good. It's magnet school, middle school, and high school, but I digress. But lots of fun. Just so that uh, in case there are any new listeners uh, this go around, a brief introduction of myself. My name is Gabrielle Gay. I am very active in WCAPS. I co-chair the Youth Ambassadors Program, as well as the International Development Working Group. And I am the lead of the WCAPS Mentorship Program and the Pipeline fellows program. Uh, Just a little piece about me. And I work at Catholic Relief Services in impact investing and private sector engagement. All right, so shall we just dive into these juicy questions about mentorship and WCAPS? So first, I'd like to know about your relationship with WCAPS and how you came to learn about this organization. Okay, well, it's all Ambassador Bonnie's fault. (laughs) We met when she was at the State Department leading our country's initiative against transmittal of weapons of mass destruction. And I happened to have been working with another one of associates 
there at the State Department, serving as a maritime community expert on security uh, associated with that, you know, because, you know, weapons of mass destruction don't just pick up by themselves and move around the globe. And, and most of the time they, they uh, are transmitted or, or shipped by ocean carrier. And the U.S. government, and it's generally the intelligence community and the State Department that was interested in tracking these items and dual-use materials, but they're so, or historically had been so locked into, you know, their usual guys, people in uniform, attaches, and, and other people. And so I happened to have been, I guess, at the right place at the right time, and ask the right question is, why don't you plug into the existing commercial maritime community, which, as a result of this regulatory instrument, applies globally, where the ports themselves have to maintain standards. Uh, Part of those standards includes identifying cargoes that are potentially problem or certain dangerous chemicals known as CDCs, for example, we, we've all heard of this past week of the warehouse in Beirut that blew up. Well, that port and that facility is covered under the ISPS code, the International, the International Ship and Port Facility Security Code. And their government inspectors, not just you know the national inspectors there, but also the U.S. government, the Coast Guard, has a international port security liaison program team that goes globally to to review the standards actually in place at foreign ports to ensure that they're complying with the regulatory requirements. Mm-hmm. So there's, once again, this is a, uh, you know, it's what happened in Beirut is horrible, it's terrible, but it's preventable. And the silver lining to that particular cloud is that, once again, that's going to move, or I expect it to push, the idea of maritime trade and transportation security to the top of the read list for a host of people, both in industry and in government. Very cool. Awesome. And with all of that in mind, what is your opinion on what mentorship is and why it's important. Hmm. Okay. Well, mentorship, I view it as a relationship between two people where the the senior individual, you know, presumably the one with more knowledge and experience and resource connections, provides guidance and assistance to the junior partner in that relationship. I view we we say mentorship, and that's a term we use today, but I think of it in terms of like an apprenticeship. You know, back in the old days where you were talking about older, wiser, more experienced uh, artisans taking either new recruits or journeymen under their wing to share their secrets and their skills with them to to make them more professional and make them more knowledgeable or help them be more knowledgeable of uh, within that particular craft, or in this case, in our case, a discipline or a, a field. Yeah, I can agree with that as well. And it sounds like a lot of those 
practices in the old days in terms of taking some someone under your wing sounds a lot like what we consider sponsorship these days. Quick question. I wonder, do you think that there is value in younger, more junior, perhaps professionals, mentoring more seasoned professionals? Do you think there's any value there or things I, to be learned? I think, as I said, it's a partnership. And, the, you know, mentorship is not a, a static classroom environment where you've got the mentor saying, you are my mentee, sit there, I am going to teach you all I know, and you're going to absorb it like a sponge, and you're going to be better off for it. In my opinion, it should be a partnership. Both parties have skills and experience, or in some cases, ignorance that they bring to the table. Sometimes, you know, you've, you've probably seen this when you're sitting around a conference table, or, or a, an operations planning table that's chock full of, of, of experts, people with years of experience and papers and books sitting at the table, but around the walls are the support people who have no experience, but sometimes it is the person that is totally ignorant and therefore doesn't know what everyone else has agreed to is the norm that will ask the question that sparks that alternate conversation that actually can develop a solution. So yes, I believe there is a great deal of value in, in a mentorship partnership where both sides learn. And now that means that your mentor has to give up the, the, historic concept of what a mentor is and be open to receiving and learning from their mentee. Now, these days, the, the easiest, most prevalent example of that is you can have an older person who has tons of experience, but unless he can translate that experience and that information into or migrate that into a digital format to share it with, with uh, the rest of the world, he is lost. Funny story, I actually remember when, when computers, other than the big computer in the basement of the Pentagon, when they started integrating computers into individual offices, the, the E4 or E5 admin body in the four stars office became king or queen, because uh, when the general wanted something done and his computer wasn't playing nice anymore, he had to scream for that person who would come in and share their experience and their knowledge of how the digital systems work in order to help things move forward. Very cool. And I really, I really like what you said about folks bringing perhaps ignorance to the table. Initially, I'm like, what? And then, you know, it makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of even positions that you can find nowadays where they ask you what your experience in a particular area is. And the less that you have, the better it is because they want fresh perspectives yes. and because there isn't an unlearning process that you have to go through because you picked up all of these habits that aren't necessarily good along the way. So very valid point. As well as some basic assumptions. 
if everyone for 20 years has been, you know, starting off their planning or their writing or whatever they're doing by following the basic assumptions, and those basic assumptions are somehow flawed, you know, but you're never going to find that out unless you get someone to ask the question, well, why are we making that assumption? Is that assumption valid? Indeed. And over time, assumptions tend to morph and, and need to evolve. So your thinking should also go along with that. So that's a great point. Aside from moving in partnership, what are some other qualities uh, you think are, are good for mentors and mentors to have, mentees and mentors to have? I'll start with mentors being one. A mentor needs to be enthusiastic about his discipline or his subject. Enthusiasm is catching. And it's always easier to, to uh, share with someone who really wants to hear what you have to say. And is, 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 I've been in situations where trying to help someone, trying to mentor someone was like pushing a boulder up a, up a mountainside because, you know, for whatever reason, they were not receptive. They were not excited about what we were doing. They just wanted it to be over, which is not an ideal environment in which to mentor someone. Much rather have someone that is so excited, you know, you know that they're pulling the information out of you almost faster than you can get it out. So, so that's good. Um, and then, but as a mentor, you have to have patience. And you have, to be, you have to be open to recognizing your mentee's strengths and weaknesses and not doing it for them. You know, letting them ask the question, letting them work through the problem and coming to their conclusions. And then you can have a discussion about why and how they came to those conclusions and if they can support those conclusions. I, uh, I have to admit that for me, I don't know about other people, but my, my foray into mentorship, my journey as a mentor began with my daughters. I was a uh, single military father raising two young girls on a military post in a very, very male-dominated environment. My girls were kind of like the mascots of a special forces intelligence unit. They were always there except when classified work had to go on. But so I had to find creative ways of encouraging them to, to learn while dealing with these other things. And it, it just, it would have been entirely too easy to just transition or flip the switch and say, okay, did you do your homework? No, drop, give me 10 push-ups, then go do your homework or things like that. But so that was my four. I, I learned how to, to treat each of them based upon their personalities and what they liked and what they wanted so that they would respond. And then, of course, they provided feedback once again. They, they kind of mentored dad. And, of course, I knew that I had done something wrong or needed to be corrected anytime. They said, oh, dad. And it was, I, I learned about mansplaining. And that is very important when you're, when you, when you're a man mentoring a, a female professional. 
you know, and from our perspective, well, from my perspective, and I don't know if any of the, the watchers had thought about this, but here in America, we all grew up hearing and reading and watching the same Disney animated fairy tales where the woman in the story was always waiting for Prince Charming to and solve her problems. And so the, the girls in the audience, you know, the little girls in the audience got used to having daddy come and solve, solving or offering to solve the problems uh, if they were lucky and, and they had good dads. And the dads got used to, you know, okay, oh my God. She's got a problem. I need to find a way of solving this. So for me, the big change, the thing that I needed to do that they helped me with was to learn how to not try and solve everything, how to listen effectively, how to guide a conversation or provide input so that the mentee, be it my daughters or anyone else, can, can arrive at their appropriate conclusion. Yeah, that's fantastic. And folks seldom think about how these Disney movies or other programming on TV can really influence how folks act throughout their whole entire lives. Yes. So that's that's a great point. That's very interesting to think about. And what you said about mentoring folks in a way that allows them to arrive at their own conclusions and solutions and to really unpack their own goals and how to get there is very important as well. And something that I really, really appreciate about my own mentor. So wonderful. Um, this is, this is all great. And everybody strives to find a wonderful mentor or be a wonderful mentor once they find one. But do you have any advice for our listeners on, what approaches maybe you've used in the past or that you've seen used in order to find that perfect mentor? What do you think your top three tips would be? First of all, I would say if you're looking for a mentor, you first need to know what it is you want to do. What, is, what are your goals and objectives? And I use the plural because I recommend that you know, it's just a little desktop exercise. Sit down, take a piece of paper, and write down the top three, your top three objectives in terms of finding a job or pursuing a, a grant or, or researching a subject. What are the top three subjects or objectives that capture your interest? Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that, and I'm sure you know, a lot of people as well who have grown up expecting to become doctors or lawyers or dentists or concert pianists because that's what they were always told was in store for them. This is what they were expected to do. And so they spent a lot of their parents' money and their time, you know, pursuing that goal only to get there and the deciding, eh, this isn't what I wanted after all. Yeah. So, and, and that does a disservice to the mentee as well as the mentor. You know, it's, it's the mentor, well, I won't say all of them, but I know for me, I take encouragement and I, I gain energy 
and enthusiasm from my mentees' energy and enthusiasm about their project. Secondly, I think mentees need to have vision. You know, it's, it's the world is changing. Whatever your project is, your vision for that subject or that discipline or that project needs to extend beyond the immediate. You know, I don't, it's depending upon the nature of your, of your discipline. It might be driven by political requirements. You need, you have what you want to do, but you know, you only have one or two presidential cycles in which to, to achieve that objective, or it may be in terms of funding or whatever reason you need to have vision to be able to, to project beyond your initial deadline or your initial goal and develop contingencies to support either, hey, I've accomplished this phase, what's next? Or, well, I ran into a brick wall that time, where am I going to next? How, how do I get around this obstacle or obstruction? And third, and I can't stress this enough, they need to have courage because when you are traditionally, well, the structure of a traditional mentor-mentee relationship is that you've got someone coming to, to sit at the feet of their mentor and learn from them. And psychologically, that's like for most, well, I won't say most, but I, I expect that for a lot of us as mentees, it's, it's, well, I'll never be as good as that person, or how can I expect to, to achieve that? And I, I recall when I first, my first job in my chosen discipline, I was put in a room on a team with people that had been actively involved in and had received awards for working on, for successfully working on a project of national security import. And I'm sitting there, it's like, okay, why am I, what am I doing here? I, I don't, how can I ever expect to, to, to reach that level of professionalism and, and expectation? But over time, after having run off a few cliffs and into a few walls myself, I, I arrived at the point where I looked around and said, hey, I'm one of the old no, knowledgeable guys now. So, but uh, it's important. And getting back to my daughters, uh, what I used to tell them, still tell them, is that your ideas are no worse and in some cases better than anybody else's. It all starts with an idea. The question is, how can you develop your idea and package and deliver it in such a fashion that even people that have been around for decades will scratch their head and say, huh, that's an interesting idea. Why didn't I think of that? Very cool. I was just thinking also one of the points that you made about really having a vision as a mentee on what, where you want to go in a sense. I just wanted to reassure our listeners that this is possible even if you don't necessarily have a solid end goal in place. I know from experience, I have bounced around in many different um, areas of work and been interested in so many different things. 
And I think the, what I had to clarify myself on was, you know, what mission did I want to follow and what ultimately, what impact I wanted to create rather than what job position I wanted to hold or, you know, where I wanted to go specifically. I really just focused on the impact that I wanted to make in the world. And that is a great thing to kind of latch your vision onto. So thank you for sharing that. Not so much as a response to that, but just to reinforce, you know, when I said vision, that encompasses for me the idea that sometimes you're ahead of your time. And one of the most exhilarating feelings in the world is when you are working an issue or a project that no one else understands, no one else may be behind, but you keep on it and you achieve your goal. And then afterwards, something happens and then everybody else is running to catch up with you. And then, of course, there's always those people out there that are running to catch up so they can try and take credit for what you've done. <laughs> but, but, you know, so vision is great. You, you need to have vision. And that, once again, that, that's where the courage comes in, the courage to continue to pursue your vision, even though others don't necessarily see the same things that you do. Absolutely. And I tend to believe that most of the jobs, if you just want to think at that level, jobs or positions, and even some bits of industries will be obsolete, you know, in a couple of decades. So you being forward thinking is, is definitely beneficial. And I think a lot of folks that are, you know, coming up the ranks and, and getting into the pipeline now are going to create brand new things that we wouldn't have even even fathomed and, and new ways of thinking about our existing structures and industries and such. So I, I like to think in that way that, you know, hey, I could create something brand new one of these days. Yes. Well, for example, when I got started in my, and I don't use the word job, I prefer to think of it in terms of career. Because jobs change, but mm -hmm. you focus on a career, then you can you can adapt and and readjust the the technical aspects of your job mm -hmm. as you know you go through and and the career field morphs. For example, in security, back after nine eleven, once again the focus was on preventive, physical, and personnel security for facilities and uh, vessels worldwide. Now that hasn't changed, but the threats and the risks against those, against those facilities and vessels have morphed. Now there's an entire new sub-discipline to security, global security, which is cybersecurity. And, and for example, the idea, if you ever used to go to a cargo port, you see the, the containers all stacked up five high next to the port, and there's some guy with a, a forklift shoveling them around, moving them around, taking them to uh, the quayside at the port so the guy in the big, tall container crane can lift them and put them onto or take them off of the ship. And all of that was done in an analog fashion. Someone literally had a piece of paper with little squares on it with numbers representing, you know, the container. And so 
these guys get paid good because you've been to perhaps Chuck E. Cheese where they've got the little ball thing where you where you put the quarter in and you have to maneuver the claw to get your, well, that's what the guys on the cranes do, except they have to take specific containers out of a ship to put on a specific truck bed or a specific place on the dock. But now the industry has, has changed so much. You now have, have uh, container ships that, ha- that carry multiple thousands of containers on one ship. And because of their size, the container cranes have had to been adjusted and build newer, wider, taller cranes. And in order for those those uh, crane operators to be effective, it's no longer analog where they actually have to look down and do it. It's by computer. So now all of that logistical support that used to be totally dependent on the human operator is now linked into a computer somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, you know, this is a national security or a security organization. Look at, you know, every country in the world that I know of is, is tied into international trade and commerce, which means ships going back and forth across the ocean. Mm-hmm. What do you think Christmas would be like when all of those toys that are coming from some manufacturing, some warehouse or manufacturing plant in Southeast Asia, you know, they get to a transit port and someone is hacked into the, the loading plan for that ship and wiped it. Now you've got a ship with 3,000 containers worth of, of toys that no one knows what toy is where where the container goes, it's not going to make it to either the toy store or the, you know, the Best Buy or whatever it is, you know, and then you get the negative cascading economic effect of, of just that one action. So, yeah, I can't, when you were talking about the, the shipyard, it made me think of the wire, the one season where they were just on the shipyard the entire season. And I think that might have been the analog way of doing it, but that's interesting. There was something I read about a lot eons ago about a ship, a giant ship that they lost all of the containers in the ocean, similar type of situation where it just negatively impacted like so many downstream actors. Um, Well, yes, there's, you know, for anyone that's never been on a ship or seen pictures of a raging storm on the high seas, you have absolutely no idea the destructive force of winds and waves. If you, if you go onto my Facebook page, my, you know how you have the image across the top? Mm-hmm. Yes, there is, what I have is a picture of a ship that came into the port I was working at at the time that had managed to keep from sinking during a moderate storm, but all of the containers were canted. You know, they lost a number of containers overboard, but the ones that didn't fall over were literally like hanging by a thread. So, yeah. Yeah, the ocean is definitely treacherous. Okay. I wondered what peace and security related opportunities do you foresee for women of color specifically in the global maritime uh, trade and transportation security communities? 
So, and also, how does mentorship fold into these opportunities? Okay, I am so glad you asked that. If you don't have one, you may want to get a cup of coffee. This may take a little while. But first of all, as I said, this is a global community, and is it represents a global career opportunity. So, first of all, there is education and training. And the training programs are not that long or expensive. And in some cases, governments, you can, various governments will actually pay to have people trained because they have to have trained people on their staff Mm -hmm. in order to comply with the regulatory requirements. Failure to do so may result in fines or even have their facilities be shut down by their governments. But also, every port and every logistical facility in the world has to be insured by someone. Some of them are self-insured, but some of them you have commercial insurers. And insurers are all about identifying and mitigating and monetizing risk. So uh, even if you don't necessarily want to work on a port or for a port or for a cargo carrier or a passenger cruise carrier, there's all of those other agencies and organizations out there that need people with those skill sets. Um, And then there are specific technical aspects that play into it. Like I said, you were just talking about cybersecurity. The U.S. government has recently released a new regulatory guideline for all facilities, all maritime facilities that have to be in compliance with the U.S. version of the ISPS code, which is called the Maritime Transportation Security Act. So that means that all of those IT people, and there are an awful lot of women in the IT field, uh, not just here, but globally. Mm -hmm. So now there is another skill set that may be attached to their their IT credentials that will that will offer them opportunities that just being in IT will not provide them so it's and like i said it's one of the jobs that i used to do one of the positions one of the functions that i would that i would serve is to be an auditor i would be hired to travel the world and conduct compliance audits of vessels or port facilities to, you know, as a, an independent third party auditor, you know, you're, you're presumed, rightly so, that you are independent and you're not, that you're honest. Because no port in the world that I know of, even the, the honest ones, you know, aren't going to let their people audit their own plans and their own operations and tell their insurance carriers that, no, we're not in compliance. We're deficient in these areas. Yes, please, you know, please uh, charge, please increase your premiums so you'll continue to provide us with coverage in the event something bad happens as a result of our noncompliance. So that's, and that's a good avenue that I recommend, especially, especially for the cruise industry. 
people go on cruises. You know, most guys I know don't go with other guys. They go with their wives, their girlfriends, their girlfriends' girlfriends. So when you're conducting audits, you you need to have a woman's perspective as to what what is occurring on board the ship. Is it safe? Is it secure? You know, all of those things. And it's the same when you're talking about foreign ports. As you're aware, the People's Republic of China is investing a huge, huge amount of financial resources in helping that continent, the various governments, to redo their infrastructure, their trade and transportation infrastructure. I think perhaps for the first time ever, the continent is going to have a rail system that has the same gauge track in all the countries. All of those countries that used to be belong to, to uh, England and France and Germany and Belgium, they all, you know, they were concerned about their, the economic interests of their home country. And they built their infrastructure to support their operations and to prevent takeovers, you know, in case of armed attack. You know, you can only get so far if, you're, if you've got all your tanks on a flatbed carrier on a rail line. You get to the border of the next country and, well, we need to take all the tanks off this train and see if we can find a way to get them across the border and onto the rail line of the other, you know. So, but now, because of that integration, do you remember? Uh, oh, do you remember the Tinker Toys? They're wooden toys back in the back in the day where you had kind of uh, it looked like a wheel. You had a a a one Tinker Toy with a lot of holes in it that you could plug the the rods into, and you could take those two different kinds of of types of toy and make, create things with it. But that's what's happening now in terms of trade and transportation infrastructure on a massive scale in Africa, on the continent. So that if you think about Africa, trade and transportation, as starting with the port, you know, you have a map, you start with where the port is and where the point of manufacture or the point of sale is, and then start overlaying all of the other logistical support and delivery functions, each one of those represents a, a career path that may be, that is tied into trade and transportation security. Absolutely. Very cool. It sounds like there are so many opportunities and areas for women of color to plug in Yes. into this area of work and really share their perspectives and make it a more secure area or secure industry. If I may uh, reach back to one of the other things we were talking about with the uh, Disney. Sure. Okay. When you go global, it is critically important that you get to know the people that you're working with. You have to be able to communicate effectively with them and what my daughters grew up hearing when I was teaching my intelligence guys is that in order to understand, you know, everybody knows Sun Tzu. If you know your enemy's capabilities and resources and you know your own, then you will win every battle or words to that effect. But it's not just 
you know, at a tactical level. It is also sociological and historical. So you need to, when you're, when you're looking at working on projects or engaging in conversations of national, international security import, it is critically important to learn their history from, from their perspective, how they view themselves. It's important to learn their religious practices because we all know that, that uh, religion seems to be a source of a great deal of conflict throughout the world. And then third, you need to learn their fables and fairy tales. Because, and you, you know, anytime I'd say that, people would look at me and say, why should I learn their fables and fairy tales? Because that will tell you a lot about how the people in your, your target area of work think and react instinctively. If we're talking about someone that, that you don't know, or if I come to you and you say, well, you know, what kind of person is he? I said, he always cries wolf. You know exactly what I mean about that person because you know the fairy tale that that, that analogy comes from. Mm-hmm. So, and every culture around the world has their own stories and fairy tales that inform their thought process on an individual and a national level. So, so true. And that reminds, I mean, even when I was back many moons ago, when I was doing Peace Corps, they gave us our language guide. And in the back, there's an entire section dedicated to idioms and phrases and different sayings that, you know, we were encouraged to learn so that we could understand the people a little bit more and, and kind of, yeah. So I totally see where you're going with that. And also one thing that they beat into us, not literally, figuratively, in our graduate studies was to really learn how different nations and different peoples communicate in a business environment. So what are their business practices and, you know, do's and don'ts and really pay attention to that as well when you're, when you're trying to conduct business or whatever it may be overseas. So all the- salient points. In the classes that I teach, and, and this isn't meant to be an ad, but mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to learn or for people to know, there are two books that I highly recommend anyone that's going to be working in the international environment should either take out of their library or I highly recommend purchasing their own copies. Mm-hmm. One is called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands, and the other is Multicultural Manners. Mm-hmm. And this is, it's critically important because, you know, you only get to make a good first impression once. Absolutely. And if you botch that because you do something of, that's avoidable simply because you don't know the customs and courtesies of the culture that you are hoping to do business with, then, you know, what are you going to do? It's hard to, to make up for that. True story about uh, when I was in the cruise industry. I went to, I had to join the Pacific Princess in Alexandria, Egypt. That's the old, literally the love boat they used to film on. And on cruise ships, as in other industry organizations, 
they usually have some sort of employee awards program, some recognition program where you get employee of the month or employee of the quarter and you get a, you know, a preferred parking spot and they throw you a party. Well, I went in, introduced myself to the staff captain and before we got started with our meeting where I was going to tell him, here's what I'm going to be doing. Here's what I'll need from you. Hama, hama, hama. Someone came in and said, oh, yeah, here's the list of the guys from the engine, the engine crew that won this quarter's, you know, employees of the quarter. And he said, oh, yeah, don't let me forget. We need to send someone out to buy, you know, sausage rolls and beer for the engine crew so we can have a party. Now, cruise ships hire people by national groups, nationalities. If you go on a cruise ship, you'll find, or at least here uh, in the States, you'll find that most of, most of the uh, cabin stewards are Filipinos. Most of the, the kitchen help are Mexican. Most of the bar staff are, are uh, from the Caribbean islands. And most of the engine crew are from Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world by population. Most of the engine crew in cruise ships around the world are Muslims. Buying them beer and sausage rolls to celebrate a significant achievement is not helpful. It tells them one of two things. Either you don't care enough or you didn't care enough to learn about their customs and culture, you know, their religious practices, or you knew and you ignored it. And you were, you made a conscious decision to, to disrespect them in front of, of their peers and, and uh, soil them in the eyes of their religion by, by polluting them with, with beer and, and pork sausage. Wow. So I, I kind of gently interjected into that conversation and pointed this out and made a note for myself. And at that point, I went back to Princess Cruises and got the company to start a library on board each ship. And those two books were, were included. Those were the two books that started that company's security library. And everyone that was hired to, to work in security needed to sign out and go through those books. That's very cool and very necessary. That story right there just, you know, spells, all, spells it all out. So I think that's really a great example. That would have been catastrophic, I think. <laughs> and, and, and in and of itself, it would have been catastrophic. But yeah. if you also think about, you know, Ramadan is lunar. And mm-hmm. all you need to do is have, if that had occurred mid-Ramadan, and they had actually gone through, because engine rooms are hot and noisy, and they're down there not eating or drinking. Yeah. And to, to that's literally in adding insult to injury. That's, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, security, you know, we're supposed to protect our charges and protect our assets. But sometimes we do, we do more damage to ourselves because we focus 
almost exclusively on the external threats with little or no regard on the internal threats and trying to, to avoid creating situations that will cause someone to say, you know, I've had enough. Indeed. Oh, like last week, I don't know if you heard, there was a uh, cruise ship whose contracted security force, the only ones on board that were allowed to have weapons, they hadn't been paid in a long time. And one of the security workers took over the ship and held the ship hostage. Oh, no. Until, yeah. So. That's terrible. Yeah, you, have, you definitely have to treat the, the folks internal to your your operation correctly in order to avoid creating yeah, a crisis, like you mentioned. So, like I said, interesting how people don't think about that. That those are all things, the little subtle nuances that go into the security discipline. Getting back to one of my first statements, it's not all gates, guards, and guns. It's about the people. Indeed. Indeed. And with all of those wonderful opportunities that you shared and the nuances that I'm being impartial here, I think women can definitely add some value to and, and really pay attention to. What challenges and or barriers do you see for women of color in, in this arena? And how do you think mentorship by men or others can kind of help mitigate these or knock down these barriers? I think the single most resilient barrier that women of color or women, period, have to face in the security industry, uh, the maritime security industry, is the fact that it's historically been male. And it's easier on the land side because they're in a facility that is subject to, you know, if you're talking about here in the United States, they live and operate in, in municipalities that have laws against, you know, discrimination or sexism and things like that. And they're, they're law enforcement entities in place that where violations can be reported and addressed. And God knows we got enough lawyers that, that are just, you know, waiting for opportunities uh, for cases. On the working on ships is different because most cargo ships and passenger cruise ships are foreign flagged, which means they fall under foreign law. So a lot of the protections that uh, exist here in the United States don't necessarily exist on those ships in international waters. And then, of course, the other thing is that it's just, well, you were military. And you joined, you, you went to West Point after that institution had been totally male for so long. And I'm sure you heard stories, if you didn't experience it yourself, the, the difficulty in overcoming those barriers that were so ingrained in the culture. And that is the same thing that you have on board ships, because you've got a culture of male dominance generally overseen by a ship's master who is, you know, a, a male captain who is the master of that ship and his word, you know, is law. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't think it's important, then good luck trying to, to get that addressed. Now that is changing a lot for a host of reasons. Celebrity cruises back in, I think, January or February, 
they actually had a ship where all of the the deck crew and the bridge crew are all women first time ever the captain the staff captain all of your officers so so there are opportunities and first thing i would suggest is is go on on um linkedin and google you know women's security groups or women's security officers to well you know there're now more ways of identifying resources and contacts through computer-based databases than ever before. So there are opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that made me think of, in terms of it being easier on land versus on water and kind of how this sector or this industry or sector is dominated by men. Uh, You're right. The same thing happens in the military for a long time. You know, women were trying to claw their ways into infantry and the rangers and being on the front line of battle and i think i've read a few things about how some barriers have definitely been broken but i feel like i read articles every day the first woman pilot to you know do this or the first you know black woman in the military to to do that so it's very interesting and there are ways in so keep that in mind listeners i also want to ask you how do you see wcaps aiding in ushering women of color towards some of these opportunities? Well, I think WCAPS, I like the format that you have. If you go, when I go to your website and you've got things like you you list the disciplines and the working groups, and that is great because getting back to what I said earlier, you know, when I, if you've got a mentee that I ask them to write down the three areas of interest. Well, that the first thing that I see WCAPs doing is identifying those resources within WCAPs that are already in that space in either the working groups or or disciplinary area to to match up with those with those mentees at least for an initial conversation to find out well what is this career field like anyway you know mm-hmm. because unfortunately all too often there is a universe of difference between their expectations and the realities of of that career so and i am personally looking forward to to opportunities to work with with you and and ambassador bonnie to to find and and inject opportunities into your organization. I, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw it, but I, I sent the, the, are you familiar with NIST? I'm not, what is that? NIST is the National Institute, National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's there in Greenbelt, Maryland. Oh, not far from me. Yes, well, they are the government agency that is developing uh, the framework for cybersecurity that is to be applied to, to uh, industry, you know, and all industries, because these days everyone is connected. It's a, everyone's plugged into the IoT. For those that don't know, IoT stands for the Internet of Things. 
everything and everybody is connected by internet. And we talked about cybersecurity. And one of the reasons that that is going to be such a burgeoning field is because when we think of everything being connected, uh, we talk about the supply chain. And it's true. That chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And now cybersecurity is where most of the weak links are to be found. So they just released a, um, a document called the, anyway, they just released a document for review. And they're asking for individuals and organizations to review this document and get back to them with recommended changes by August 28th. And so you've got a cyber, WCAPS has a cybersecurity working group, and there are other groups that aren't cybersecurity specific, but uh, cybernetics is an integral part of that group's function and, and the operations. So I forwarded that to you guys so that you could review it and, and staff it out. And I think that that is one way of of getting WCAPs involved in the government level planning and coming up with guidance that is ultimately going to be sent to all of the critical infrastructure security sectors that uh, are identified by the Department of Homeland Security. Very cool. Well, you certainly have given me and the listeners a lot to think about, a great preview and kind of snapshot into the world of global maritime uh, commerce and security. And I certainly have learned a lot this evening um, in this discussion. And, you know, we appreciate your comments on not only that industry, but also how mentorship folds into all of that and some of the great lessons that you've learned throughout your own mentorship experiences, especially with your daughters, which was, was really cool to hear. I wonder if you have any closing thoughts or bits of advice on anything that we've discussed tonight, just to leave our, our viewers with a little a tidbit or a runaway snippet of something. The only thing that I can think to say is the world is yours. You are, you are, the very fact that you're, you're engaged with or becoming part of WCAPS tells me that you have vision and you are, you are looking to expand the boundaries of your personal and professional horizon. And I congratulate you and I encourage you and I salute you. And uh, hey, go forth. Do great things. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mr. Thomason. And we definitely look forward to engaging you in the future with more WCAPS projects. So stay tuned. Thank you, Gabrielle. I look forward to it. Thank you.